Hey, when I was in college, um, I was still in Minnesota, and my parents bought a fairly large sailboat, foolishly, but they bought one. And uh, Minnesota being Minnesota, we had it out on one of the larger lakes, Lake Waconia. And every once in a while, I enjoyed going out and taking it out by myself. So one day I did, one afternoon. It was a pretty nice afternoon when I launched out, but Minnesota, you can see stuff coming on the horizon. And it was, I turned around, there was like a pretty major storm coming. And I realized I didn't really have time to get back to our dock where my parents had their boat docked. So I just kind of raced into shore and um, took the sail down and had a little tent thing you could put up over the boom. And I threw out one of these. And uh, in fact, if I remember right, it looked a lot like this. Um, threw it out, kind of dropped the anchor, and laid down and fell asleep. Next thing you know, I'm like woken up, like jostling all over the place. I'm hearing voices yelling, and, and, and there's like water splashing in underneath the tarp thing I'd stuck up. I stuck my head out, and I was out in the middle of the lake. And the, some guys in a boat saw this sailboat just sailing out by itself and ran up to try to rescue it. They were surprised to see a, somebody's head stick out from under there. They threw me a line and towed me to where we normally docked it, and I tied it off. Here's the question. What do you have in your life when things get stormy, when things get scary, when things are all confusing? What do you have in your life that's secure, that you can depend on, that you can anchor your life down and know that you're going to be okay? What, what do you have in your life like that? Man, if you're in need of something like that, something described uh, in Hebrews 6 as a firm, steadfast anchor for your soul, that's just a great phrase that's put right in there in the midst of, of Hebrews, a firm foundational anchor for your soul. If you're in need of that, then, then may Christmas be a time that you find that. And I hope that this message, and in particular this verse that we're about to look at, is helpful to give you something firm to hold on to. Hope for the hopeless is what Christmas is ultimately all about. A light coming into an incredibly dark world. Hope and light, hope and light. Those two words kind of pop together a lot throughout Scripture, and that makes sense. And for the verse that we're about to look at, an incredibly familiar one, it's one that you uh, have been familiar with with most of your life because it just pops up at Christmas all the time. This verse really captures what hope and light is really all about. Isaiah 9-2. Isaiah 9-2, written by Isaiah, recaptured for Jesus himself in Matthew 4, here it is. The people living, walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You and me, living in a land, walking in darkness, have seen a great light. You and me, Living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now that verse is incredibly hopeful. It's, it's very honest of the state of the world, but it's incredibly hopeful. 
And it really captures what Christmas is all about. Christmas is about light. It's just no wonder that as you drive around at night, this time of year, there's just lights everywhere. You know, I think people even that don't know the symbolism and what that's about just can't help themselves but to be stringing lights everywhere. That really captures what Christmas is all about. And with light comes hope in a dark and ever deep darkening world. And if ever there was a time that we needed that, light and hope, it seems to me it's now, Christmas 2017. Christmas came on that night long ago in an incredibly dark world. And things haven't changed all that much in, in all the thousands of years since. And so before it seems to me that we can understand and really grasp a hold of what light and hope is all about, we need to take an honest look at the state of the world that we're in, which again hasn't changed all that much since long ago. And to kind of grasp one of the great themes of Scripture, which is darkness. Darkness. Darkness, the word translated darkness, appears in Scripture in the Old and New Testament 196 times. That means, incredibly, that darkness is one of the great themes of Scripture. And it, it has seemed to me for a long, long time that that, among so many other things, point to the, to the validity of Scripture, to the tenacity of Scripture, to the legitimacy of of just taking an honest look at the world in which we live. You know, I've always thought, it, if I was God and I was going to write a book about me, I, I wouldn't include a lot of the stuff that's in Scripture currently. Someone actually took that to heart. His name was Thomas Jefferson. You ever seen a Jefferson Bible? He clipped out all the dark, bad things and just made it kind of nice. You know what I mean? But our Bible isn't like that. It dares to ear the dirty laundry of great ones like King David himself, you know? And so to me, for the Bible to dare to show the dirt and all of this world in which we've messed up is just so powerful because it's in the midst of the darkness comes the shining light. Hasak in Hebrew, skodos in Greek, translated darkness or, or utter darkness. And the Bible right out of the gate references the darkness. Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And then picture this. The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now, now I don't know about you. I just always taken Genesis literally. You know what I mean? I, I think he actually did that. He created this world that wasn't quite formed up yet, but it was there, and, and no stars, no lights, no, no sun, and God just wanted to get down and get a close look at this darkness, and by the power of the Spirit, he's hovering along this deep, dark ocean. Powerful imagery. Capturing, I think, in many ways, the spiritual, emotional, and personal darkness that comes with the human experience. And if you've been on this planet any amount of time, you know what that's all about. Job certainly understood the darkness that can come with being a human. And he captures the situation ultimately like this. I mean, this is a, this is a depressing passage. 
listen to this. This is Job who really had the world by the tail like you and I often do. And then things turn. You know the story. And he describes his life like this. I go to a place of no return, to the land of gloom and utter darkness, to a land of deepest night, of utter darkness and disorder, where even the light is like darkness. Where even the light is like darkness. Man, that was, that was Job's world. And maybe that captures your world as well. Or someone that you love and care about. Where even the light feels like darkness. So depressing. Now, it's into that world full of darkness that God called Isaiah. Isaiah, hand-selected by God himself to step in and to speak words of repentance and redemption and hope. And at first, Isaiah, understandably, wanted no part of it. I mean, he was a young man, and he's going, ah. But over time, God won, it, won the day. When God calls you, you cannot say no. He's not asking. He's God. He's like calling. And so finally, Isaiah just, you can almost picture him throwing up his hands and uttering these words. These words, this verse was etched on the cornerstone of my seminary. I, I can remember in in St. Paul, Minnesota, just walking in the door, seeing this verse, and just wondering, what does that mean for me, played out over time? And the words uttered by Isaiah, here am I, okay, you got me, send me. Here am I, send me. And send him, God did, right into the jaws, into the power, powder keg that was the southern kingdom of Judah, with enemies gathered all around, and they had seen what had happened to the north. Powerful foreign enemies, inept political leaders, just watching their own backsides and making deals with the enemy. Running scared, corrupt political and religious leaders going through the, through the motions, just kind of in it for themselves. No help to the people, and the people just running scared, not knowing where to turn for help and for, for leadership. Just sounds a lot like today, you know? And again and again and again, when you read scripture, you just got to come like, things have not changed. <laughs> they just haven't, you know? And so God's into that situation, sends Isaiah. And he sums up the situation like this. If you have your Bible, flip to Isaiah 8, 21 and 22. This is just before the beginning of chapter 9, these are the last couple of verses. This is the picture he paints. They pass through, the people do, the land, hard-pressed and famished. And when they are hungry, they become enraged and curse their king and curse their God as they face upward. And when they do that, they experience distress, darkness, gloom, and anguish. Ultimately, they will be driven away into darkness. And that's depressing. Imagine if Isaiah said, so deal with it. Like, imagine if I ended the message there, like, have a nice day. You know what I mean? In the midst of, of a portrait of life like that. But Isaiah doesn't stop there, fortunately, and, and, and neither should we ever. When life is at its darkness, we should never stop with that. It, the story doesn't stop here. It doesn't stop there. The world was dark and getting darker in Isaiah's day. 
But God was stronger. He was stronger than darkness. And Isaiah knew that. And so Isaiah uses a word to launch chapter 9 that is incredibly hopeful. It's a word that you always want to take notice of when you're reading through passages of Scripture. This word is a game changer. It like flips things upside down. It goes from chapter 8 and the last couple of verses right into a whole new train of thought. It captures the passionate heart of God for you and me. And the word, you see it there at the beginning of chapter 9. Nevertheless, nevertheless. NIV, I think, uses the word but, but. And there's power in a word like that. It's not candy coating over the reality of what is. Again, scripture just calls it like it is. I acknowledge that this is dark and looks hopeless. It is. This is not good. Nevertheless, but, and the saga continues, it doesn't end here. One commentator puts the reality of darkness and where Isaiah takes it next this way. Beyond the darkness of the hidden face of God and the distressful dark situation, there is the shining light of hope found in Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 1. The world is dark and getting darker nevertheless, but, but there is a light of shining hope on the horizon. And how does Isaiah know that? Like, how can he be so sure? To, to pen it there, to encourage all the people that are reading and hearing him to have great hope. How can he be so sure? Things look absolutely desperate. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. How can you be so sure? Isaiah. Well, Isaiah had a gift from God, an ability that seems like Old Testament prophets got to do. And every once in a while, maybe we do too. It's almost like God took him into the future and gave him a vision to see what was going to happen between here and here. Like he saw it in real time. Like he got to see the end result. And so he does something really crazy. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. It's so easy to skip over because we live on the other side of Jesus, of, of the fulfillment of what Isaiah is talking about here. But back in the day, none of this stuff had happened yet. And Isaiah is talking about it. Beginning in verse 2, the verse I read a bit ago, all the way up through verse 7, every verb is what? Past tense. Past tense. Referencing things that hadn't even happened yet, he's writing like they had. Like they had. These things hadn't happened yet, but Isaiah writes as if they had. It's sort of like, it seems to me, one of my favorite movies, Back to the Future, where Doc kept telling Marty, hey, wait till you see what this is going to be like. Or the powerful speech of Martin Luther King, I've been to the mountaintop. I've seen what you haven't seen yet. It's, it's like that, that Isaiah could be so sure because this vision that came right from the heart of God, that this is his passion, that he knew he could depend on no matter what. It's like he's saying, I saw how it all works out. 
turns out our God had a plan all along, even when it looked like he didn't, even when everything looked hopeless. He saves the day in the end. There's light at the horizon. I've been there. I've seen it. Look forward to it. It's certain. It's as good as done. In fact, it already had been done. Isaiah confidently places the light of Isaiah 9-1 and following, right up against the darkness of 8-22. And he does it not because it will immediately happen, because it doesn't immediately happen. Things continue to look very dark for a very long time. But because it's immediately evident to the eye, and this is key, of faith, that you trust God, you take him at his word. J. Alec Moyer puts it all this way. The darkness is true. But it's not the whole truth, and certainly not the fundamental truth. It's not the end. What Isaiah has written here, Moyer goes on to say, is nothing short of a poem of hope. A poem of hope. Do you have a poem, a song of hope, singing in your heart? And and it's not being in denial, because the Bible sure isn't. This is dark, but my God's stronger than that. He is stronger than this. He has proved it before. He will prove it now, even when it doesn't look like it. I'm I'm anchoring everything I have, even all the way into eternity, on that. A poem of hope. My friends, hope is here. The light has come. And it's here for all to see. I am the light of the world. I mean, what an incredible statement for Jesus to make. I am the light of the world. Imagine hearing that from his lips, not knowing everything that was going to happen and not understanding fully. I mean, we know so much more now because we've studied and we've learned it and we've seen the bigger picture. But to hear that from the lips of Jesus, I am the light of the world. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should remain in darkness. There is no need to remain in darkness anymore. So in the end, Christmas is incredibly simple. The world is dark, but that's not the end of the story. God gets the last word, and his last word is Jesus, the light, and in him there is hope. Sadly, some of us have never fully encountered that light. If that's you, stick around. And and you are welcome here. And may you discover the light in the days leading up to the ultimate celebration of the light, Christmas Day. Others of us know the light and have embraced the light. We've given our life to the light, which is Jesus but we're messing around with stuff of darkness. And that is no way to live. That will eventually take you out. I mean, you may not lose your salvation, but that is no way to live. So wherever you are on the spectrum of darkness versus light, may may things change for you as you live deeper and deeper into the light and hope that is Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9, 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. John 12, walk in the light while we have the light so that darkness will not overtake us. A warning from John. 
Walk in the light while you have eyes to see the light so that the darkness will not overtake you and take you out. And the news is full of people where that has happened. May that not be you or me. And the key, it seems to me, is to live into the light. It's one thing to see the light and acknowledge the light. It's something else to walk in the light. And how do we do that? Like, what's the first step of walking in the light? I I thought about what to say next in this message. What is the key? What is the first step of, of being a man or a woman, young or old, walking intentionally in the light? And what came to me as a verse and a couple of words, it is we need to wake up. We need to wake up, kind of like me in that boat, oblivious. Oblivious is kind of an interesting word. Oblivious to what's happened, happening, and then all of a sudden waking up and realizing, this is not good. Something's got to change here, or I'm going down. I think we need to wake up. Wake up, sleeper, writes Paul to the Ephesians. Rise from the dead, and if you do that, Christ will shine on you. Christ will shine on you, and your life will change. Things will be amazingly different. If you wake up, if you rise from the dead, if you stop messing around with that and get help, Christ will shine on you. He will take you to where he would want you to go. Bob Dylan puts it this way. God don't make promises that he don't keep. You got some big dreams, but in order to dream, you got to still be asleep. When are you going to wake up? When are you going to wake up? When are you going to wake up and strengthen the things that remain, that are true? And you know they're true. You want to walk in the light? It seems to me the first thing you need to do is to wake up and admit that you have a problem, and the problem is sin. And sin has a way of lulling us to sleep. What seems outrageous at first eventually becomes acceptable in our own hearts, in our own minds. But the conviction of the Holy Spirit has a way of waking us up and calling us to repentance, and it's there that we find grace and mercy and forgiveness and a fresh start, like it never even happened. And it's there that we find restoration in life itself. This is the verdict. This is it writes John 3.19. Light has come into the world, but because people loved the darkness instead of light, their deeds were evil. May we, who live in a world that's admittedly dark, wake up. May we realize who we are. We are sons and daughters of the King. May we find the light this Christmas and follow him. May we pursue Christ. And may we stay in his word because his, his, his word is a lamp for our feet, a light for our path ahead. May we find hope this Christmas and may we discover anew or maybe for the first time that the light has dawned in this crazy, mixed-up world. That the, and in the light, may we find hope. And through it all, may we know this. May we know that we have become nothing short of a light of the light of the world, a city on a hill, a light not hidden, according to Matthew 5. 
And because we are, may we shine like stars in the sky for all to see. Philippians 2, verse 15. Also, when I was in college, my family and I used to do a lot of scuba diving. And whenever we had the opportunity, we'd get out of Minnesota. It's not a great place to scuba dive and go down to the Cayman Islands. And right off the Cayman Islands, one of the deepest parts in the ocean, it's called the Cayman Trench. You could stand on the edge of the trench and just drop in. And unless you stopped yourself, you would just go forever. And one day, we decided to do a night dive. And we're standing out on the back of the boat. There's no moon, there's no lights, no nothing. And the dive master said, when you get down and get settled, turn, we had these big lanterns, turn off your lanterns and wave your arms as hard as you can. And one of us said, why? And by that time, he was already, dive master was already in the water. So we didn't know why. So we all get in, we go down, and we're on the ocean floor, absolutely dark. We turned our lamps off. It was absolutely dark. Couldn't see the hand in front of your face. And we all started waving our arms like he told us to as fast as we could. We were all kind of gathered together, and we're just going like crazy people like this. And it was one of the most beautiful sights I had ever seen. There was like gazillions of little photoplankton, just like, it looked like we were all holding sparklers, just all over the place in that inky darkness. May that be us in the days ahead. As we fall and become deeper and deeper and fall in love more and more with Jesus, who claims to be the light, may we just give off that light for all the world to see who is in desperate need of hope and a reason to go on. May that be us. Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for all the ways that you come into our lives. You do it in your own way, each individually and us corporately. And we are so grateful. You took us when we thought it was hopeless and you brought us into the light, which is you, Jesus. May that be true for each and every person here and all that you've brought into our lives. May we who know you shine bright enough that people would see you. And when the doors open by the power of the Holy Spirit, may we have the courage to share the good news that is Christmas, that is you, Jesus, the light and the hope of the world. And if there's one here this morning that doesn't know you, may they just open up to you. May they find you. May they live into the words that we're about to say and discover it for themselves. In Christ's name, amen.